Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Ian. I'm the minister of the church here. Um, we are continuing our studies in the book of Ruth, um, which is a very short book, four chapters in the Old Testament. Um, last week, we were thinking about a surprising conversion of a lady called Ruth. This week, we're thinking about the surprising kindness of a man called Boaz. One writer I came across this week said, this chapter, Ruth chapter 2, is meant to make you smile. And I agree with that. And I hope that you'll get something of the joy that there is in this chapter. I've been looking forward to uh, unpacking this chapter with you. This chapter is written to grab you by the scruff of the neck, give you a shake and make you go, wow. So I hope you're ready. If this was a scene in a play which it almost is, because most of it's speech between the main characters anyway, I think the audience, by the end of this chapter, would be hooping and hollering and clapping, chapping and cheering, you know what I mean? Because the end of the chapter is so full of poignant joy. Let me try and show you why. At the end of chapter one, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, did not have much to smile about. They've both lost their husbands. They've lived through the middle of a famine. And in an ancient culture where family and farming are almost everything, these two women have neither of those things. To be unmarried and hungry is a double whammy. They have no prospects at all of their family line carrying on because Naomi's too old and Ruth is a foreigner and no Israelite man in his right mind is going to marry either of them. Naomi has the sense that even God himself seems to have been against her in her life when she says to some friends at the end of chapter 1, This, oh man, my eyes are so bad with this small print. Anyway, it's the end of chapter one. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So in verse two of chapter two, Ruth asks her mother-in-law, Naomi, if she can go and pick up some scraps in the fields during the harvest. Ruth is thinking, as you would, we have to do something, anything. They need food. But Naomi seems to have given up to me. Her reply looks okay in the English. She says, go ahead, my daughter. I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but in the original language that this was written, that's two words, two rhyming words, actually. Very curt, very short. It's almost as if Naomi says, do what you want, girl. She may as well have said in English, whatever. If you want to go and glean in the field, do it. Why does Naomi not go to? Is she too old to work or has she just lost all hope of anything changing for them both? So anyway, Ruth goes out. Naomi stays at home, presumably being miserable. But little did they know that this one amazing day would change their lives and even change the course of history. I need to explain to you 
what's going on here. Here's my question. What, is, what on earth is gleaning? At harvest time, you can imagine this culture, when the harvest comes, everybody in the village is involved. We're back in Bethlehem. The men in the village would go first with their sharp knives, their manly sharp knives, and as they go through the field, they would cut the tops of the stalks off with the grain at the top, and they'd leave it in the field, and then a line of women would come behind them, picking up the grain, tying them together in little bundles called sheaves, and stacking them up at the end of the row, and then another line of women would come along behind them and transport those sheaves to the threshing ground where they'd be mashed up, and all the stalks would be thrown away and the grain would be bagged up and put into storage. You get the idea. Do you know in the Old Testament, God gave all kinds of laws to his people, the nation of Israel. And one of them, get this, was to tell landowners never to harvest to the edge of their field. It says in the Old Testament, this is God speaking, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. It's amazing that there's beautiful kindness written into God's laws in the Old Testament This God cares for the needy, the vulnerable, the poor. And the idea was that landowners weren't meant to get their calculators out, work out their gross profit, measure the field and basically take every last drop of grain. It was built into the law that they would be encouraged to remember the needy and the poor. Sometimes the landowners would allow people to follow behind the teams to collect up the leftover bits of grain, the stray leftovers. So that's what Ruth's doing here. She says to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go and find a field to pick up the scraps because we're starving. Remember that Ruth is a foreigner. This is dangerous work for Ruth. She's taking a big risk. And that's what makes this chapter so surprising. Ruth ends up in the field of a man called Boaz. And he shows her the most surprising kindness. We're told in verse 1 that Boaz is a man of standing. He's obviously a man of some wealth. He owns the field. He has staff working for him. And when Boaz arrives, the first thing Boaz does is to ask his foreman who this young foreign woman is. The foreman, in verse 6, can't even bring himself to say her name. He refers to her by her ethnicity. She's the Moabites, who came back from Moab with Naomi. But he has to concede that she asked for permission to glean in the field, And that since she was granted permission, she's basically been working all day apart from one short rest. Boaz immediately goes to find Ruth 
And he tells her to stay in his field and he offers her his protection. Then he says to her, you can go and help yourself to the water that my men have drawn. I don't want you to miss, that's an unbelievable statement because normally the foreigners would be the one who would be drawing the water for the men to drink. In this case, the Israelite men are drawing water and Boaz is saying to Ruth, you can help yourself to what they've drawn for you. Ruth is overcome with gratitude and she says to Boaz in verse 10, why would you do this for me, a foreigner? She's overcome by his kindness. But he surprises her even more because he knows of her reputation. And he says to her, I know what you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. I know how you've left your home in Moab to come here to support her. And he prays for her that the God she has come to take refuge in would reward her for her sacrificial kindness to Naomi. I think Boaz demonstrates a great understanding of Ruth's position. But there's more. He then invites her over for lunch. This foreign woman, he says to her, come and have lunch with all the, all the rest of the team. You can imagine the others sitting there. I don't know if they were members of UKIP, muttering to themselves, these foreigners coming over here, taking our jobs, stealing our food. He invites the foreign woman to come and sit with his team. Ruth eats more food than she's probably seen in months. And there's still so much left. Then in the afternoon, Boaz doesn't just allow her to pick up the scraps. In verse 16, he tells his harvesters to deliberately take grain out of the sheaves and sprinkle them behind them so that Ruth can collect a bumper crop. Verse 17 says that Ruth gleaned until the evening. And at the end of the day, she collects up what she's gathered. She threshes it, which means she mashes it, to separate all the stalks. And she bags up the kernels of grain. And it comes to an ephah of barley. I don't think that means anything to us. But I want you to get the wow factor. So this week I found a shop in Sheffield that sells barley grain. And on Thursday I drove over there and bought an ephah of barley. And here it is. I was going to ask for a volunteer for this. Do you think I could preach for the rest of the afternoon with this on my back? This is an ether of real barley. We're going to have barley soup for the next 10 years. So if you want to come around, we're going to be boiling it up and having barley and everything. I'm, I'm going to put it down. 
I was worried the back might split. This is roughly the equivalent for a gleaner in those days of two weeks' wages in one day. I think the women in Judges must have done more weight training than the women, I don't know, in Rotherham. Think of Naomi. She's been minding her own business at home all day. Probably wondering about whether Ruth is being abused in some landowner's field. And then Ruth comes staggering round the corner with a great sack of barley grain on her back. And if you're wondering what this is, it's a doggy back. They didn't have plastic in those days. Look at what it says in verse 18. Boaz gave her all the leftovers from the dinner she couldn't even finish. She gives the grain to Naomi and a doggy back to Naomi. Naomi basically says to Ruth, where on earth have you been? Where did you get all that? Who has allowed you to collect scraps in his field to that amount? And Ruth gives her a little report, but she saves the best bit to last without even realising it. His name was Boaz. At this point, Ruth doesn't seem to know who Boaz is, but Naomi has well and truly woken up. This man is their relative, possibly the solution to all of their problems. Naomi is like the pushy mother who's looking to marry off the daughter, She doesn't just smell barley grain, she's smelling wedding bells. Boaz, Boaz, and then Ruth innocently adds in verse 21, and another thing I almost forgot, he said I could glean in this field till the end of the harvest. Naomi's like, I bet he did. I bet he did. You stick with Boaz, we'll be fine. You and me will be sorted. Naomi has gone here in one day from whatever to wow. This chapter is designed to make you smile. Her hope has been reborn. It's like Naomi's come back to life again. These women who were empty are now beginning to be filled to overflowing. And Naomi senses the possibility of romance in the air. The great reversal in their fortunes has begun here. And all of it, all of it in this chapter is down to the sheer surprising kindness of this gentle giant of a man, Boaz, to a foreign girl in his field. What a chapter. I want to suggest to you that the theme here, in a sense, in the whole of the book, is one of kindness. I think the narrator here very deliberately highlights kindness as a key theme. I'm not an expert 
in Hebrew. I've said that already. But there is a Hebrew word here. And I'm going to show it to you. I don't have any tattoos. Um, My fear of needles probably would rule it out for me. But if I ever did get a discreet tattoo somewhere, I, I could be tempted to consider this Hebrew word. In the English, we would say this as chesed. That's how you would say it in English. And it's a word that's not easy to translate into English because there's a number of ideas involved. This word, chesed, certainly means love. But it also has within it the idea of determination and commitment. This is a love that involves loyalty and faithfulness. But it also includes the idea of that compassion and kindness being freely given. By that I mean that the person who is expressing hesed or kindness doesn't do it because they have to or because they're being forced to. The person who gives hesed does it gladly, freely, generously. So when we see this translated in the book of Ruth as kindness, keep all of that in mind. This is loyal, determined, free, committed love and compassion. I think we've done that point to death now, haven't we? You get the idea. This is a rich word. What is interesting is that in Ruth it crops up over and over. Go back with me to chapter 1 and verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you. Shout it out. That's pathetic. (laughs) Are you there? Kindness. May the Lord show you. The word is chesed. May the Lord show you his committed, determined, faithful, loyal kindness and love. Chapter 2, verse 20. We've read it already. The Lord bless him, Naomi said, as Ruth staggers around the corner and says, his name was Boaz, no idea who he is. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness, his hesed, his faithful, committed, loyal compassionate love Naomi's like what a guy he was always like this and he hasn't stopped little sneak preview if you go to chapter 3 and verse 10 Boaz says the same thing to Ruth chapter 3 verse 10 the Lord bless you my daughter he replied this kindness this Chesed is greater than that which you showed earlier, i.e. looking after your mum-in-law. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. She loves him. That kindness is more than the kindness she'd shown to a mum-in-law. So this chesed, God has it. Ruth has it. Boaz has it. There's a theme here. This is a book that is about kindness. Let me think with you for a minute about the covenant kindness of God. 
This word hesed appears in the Old Testament part of the Bible nearly 250 times. And the majority of times it appears, it's used of God himself. When God revealed himself to Moses, he used this very word to describe himself as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. To emphasize how loyal and determined this kind of kindness is, the Old Testament often speaks in terms of covenants. You know what a covenant is. It's a kind of agreement between two parties. Normally, each side promises to do things, and they put it in writing, and they make a covenant. But in the Bible, it's always God who initiates the covenant. He comes to his people and says things like, in Exodus chapter 6, it say, God says to his people, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. God comes to them and makes a covenant. He's the initiator. We were recently seeing something of God's covenant promises to bless the whole world through Abraham. In the book of Genesis. In the Old Testament, God promises that if his people are faithful to him, he will shower his covenant kindness on them. But if they're unfaithful to him, they'll experience the darkness of his curse. And I want to, I want you to see that this points forward. All of these covenant promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. God is determined to be kind to the world, even when it costs him sending his son into the world to die in our place. There's a very interesting verse in the New Testament that says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, God himself makes a covenant that includes him paying our debts when we don't keep our side of the agreement so that we might receive his unmitigated kindness. Christ dies in our place. What is going on here in the story of Ruth is that God is showing his determined, loyal, committed, faithful love to these people in their ordinary lives. And this is why Ruth left Moab and said to Naomi, your God, I want to be my God. Your people, I want to be my people. Naomi shared her faith with, with Ruth and Ruth knew that this God is a God worth clinging to and as Boaz rightly says in this chapter 
Ruth had come to take refuge under the shadow of this God's wings. In the rest of our time together now, I just want to very quickly explore with you three things we can learn about God's kindness or chesed in in, in this chapter. Three things, okay? And I'll give you them at the start. The kindness of God is compelling, it's extravagant, and it's contagious. And then we'll be done. Okay? So, first of all, the kindness of God is compelling. I was trying to think of a better word than that, but I couldn't. I even got my thesaurus out. I just couldn't. So there you go. What do I mean by compelling? What I mean by that, the kindness of God is compelling because this is a God who is trustworthy, reliable, dependable, competent, capable. You and I can trust this God with the details of our lives and he will not let you down. I don't mean that you will never experience pain. Naomi and Ruth certainly experienced pain. What I do mean, though, is that when we are trusting in this God and taking refuge under the shadow of his wings, all the experiences of our lives, even the painful experiences of our lives are designed by God for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. This God is able to shape our circumstances and there's a phenomenal comfort in that fact. Let's get back to the story. At the start of chapter 2, you'll remember that the narrator introduces us to Boaz. So we finish chapter 1 with these women being bereaved and hungry, empty. And then the narrator says that Naomi has this relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. Ancient writers had no Microsoft Word when they were writing, so they didn't like have programs to underline things or put them in italics. To emphasize them. So when the narrator says that in verse 1, the narrator is saying to you and to me and to the people who first hear this, keep your eyes on Boaz. (laughs) Keep your eyes on this man because he is possibly the answer to their problem. It's a big underline. Keep your eyes on Boaz. So Ruth goes out to glean in the field. Any field. It seems like she doesn't even know who Boaz is, but verse 3 says, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. This is almost sarcastic humor on the part of the narrator. He, he, he basically says it just so happened that she ended up in Boaz's field. <laughs> yeah. The assumption is accidents don't happen And it's almost like he's emphasizing it being pure chance in a humorous way because he's making the opposite point. 
we all know that accidents like this don't just happen. It just so happened is code for God is at work here in the ordinary desires and lives of people. Just watch what happens. These people here, Ruth is free to go wherever she likes, but somehow God is overruling her actions to further his plans. God is the one who's in control. And somehow that doesn't contradict her freedom. And to prove it, the narrator, the narrator then says, verse, oh man, these verse numbers are so small. Is it verse four? Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, it says, and behold, Boaz shows up. It's like the, it just so happens she's in Boaz's field, and if she's there gleaming, would you believe it, Boaz shows up. There's humor here. Listen, the point here is, these people have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow or next week. Like we don't, they don't know the future. Ruth doesn't even seem to know who Boaz is yet. But Ruth has moved to this place with Naomi to take refuge under the wings of God. Ruth is trusting God even though she doesn't know the details. You and I, in our lives, don't know the details. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I'll tell you what we do know. We know what God is like. We don't know necessarily what he's going to do, but we do know that he's kind. One writer I came across says, the very nature of faith is holding on to the God who is faithful and kind. I think what often happens is what happened in chapter 1. Things don't turn out the way we, we think they should, and we lose it. Ian and Denise's former pastor, Thabiti Anyabwili, said this, The temptation is to think, because I've obeyed God and this hasn't gone well, now I need to do my own thing. That's the last thing you need to do. The great thing about Ruth here is that she trusts in God and gets on with life. And in his great kindness, God unfolds his circumstances at just the right time and in just the right way. Some of it's painful, some of it's joyful, but God is unfailingly kind. I don't often like giving personal anecdotes when I'm preaching. You you know that. But it occurred to me recently that I've been a follower of Jesus for 40 years. I know I don't look old enough. 40 years. I could tell you of the many stupid things that I've done in that time. There have been many occasions where I've been unfaithful to God. I've sometimes not been the husband I should have been or the dad I should have been. 
But in those 40 years, I can tell you that I have never had cause to complain that this God has ever once let me down. As I look back over my own life, he has been involved and at work in every detail of every single day. He has shown me his hesed, covenant, faithful, committed kindness, undeserved, and it's compelling. Secondly, very quickly, let's uh, rattle on. This uh, hesed, kindness of God, is extravagant. I, I think one of the many lies that we can often fall into believing about God is that he is somehow stingy, mean, hard, and stern. I think one of the points of this chapter, it's designed to help us to see something of extravagance. That overflowing sack of barley grain is a pointer to the God who fills the empty. Behind the kindness of Boaz is really the kindness of God to these women. Boaz is the human means, but behind him, God is at work to bless these women and relieve their suffering and bring hope to them. But this is a great picture, isn't it, of what Christians call the gospel. The good news of the message of the Bible is designed to be satisfying. God is at work in his great chesed, kindness, to fill people who would otherwise be empty. The contrast here being drawn between the riches and kindness of Boaz and the poverty and vulnerability of Ruth and Naomi is a little window on how it is between us and God, surely. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what the Bible teaches. I think we can often think that religion is, is saying to us, be a good person and God might let you be on his team. But this gospel teaches us that we are all sinners. None of us are in a position to deserve something from God. His chesed is freely given. But the gospel also tells us that we are greatly loved by a God who is extravagantly kind to those who don't deserve it. I can't remember who it was who coined the phrase. The, the central message of the Christian gospel is that we are more lost than we think we are and yet more loved than we could possibly imagine. We could go all over the Bible. The prodigal son, you know the story of the prodigal son. He came home expecting to be punished, not realizing that his loving father had been waiting and watching for him for years and ran down the road to greet him and embraced him when he stank of pigs. Welcomed him, he clothed him, he fed him, he brought him back into the family that he'd once despised. 
they basically had a massive party and the dad said, this son of mine was dead, now he's found. Now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. I could take you to the encouraging words of one of Jesus' disciples, John, who said, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us like a sack of grain bursting open that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Or Paul, who wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul described how he became a Christian this way. This is what he said. We were dead in our sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. The gospel uses the language of extravagance. Jesus did not come into the world to save self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-righteous people who think that they're sorted. The whole point of this is that God has kindness for people who are broken, lost, poor and weak. Like Boaz, Jesus came to love the outsider, the alien, the foreigner, When you think of the gospel, think of that massive sack of barley and Ruth coming home having been blessed beyond her wildest dreams. Lastly, oops, there you go, you know we're nearly done now. The kindness of God is contagious. I wanted to spend ages on this. But um. Time's gone, but I want you to get this last important idea. Tell me this, why was Boaz so generous to a foreign woman? Why? Why was Ruth so thankful and grateful? Why? I'll tell you why. It was because both of them, individually, already, had known the kindness of God in their own hearts and lives. Listen, when you and I grasp what God has done for us in his son, Jesus, it has the power to change your heart and my heart. I think this world so often seems to me to be rejecting God and turning its back on God, on this God. Sometimes I feel like I want to say to the world, generally, if I could, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? The reason we fight and scheme and strive and struggle is partly because at heart we're deeply insecure. What we need more than anything else is the peace that comes 
from holding on to this faithful covenant kindness of God. And it seems to me that the world could use more of this kindness. The generosity of manly men like Boaz. The thankfulness and initiative and courage and risk-taking, sacrificial love of womenly women like Ruth. The whole ethic of Christianity that actually transformed the world, even though we take its values for granted, is an ethic of love. The Bible tells us we love because God first loved us. That was their experience. As we close, the kindness of God in this story is compelling, extravagant, and contagious. And it calls you, calls me, to stop, to stop what you're doing, to turn around, and to come and trust in his covenant kindness. To come like Ruth did and take refuge under the shadow of his merciful wings. Ruth's God is the God who welcomes the outsider and brings them in. Welcomes the sinner and forgives them. Fills up the empty. If you turn to him, He will be with you all the days of your life, working things out for your good and for his glory. His kindness to you will be contagious and will help you to be kind to others as he's been kind to you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the Bible. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this part of it that is so rich. These are people that we can identify with. Father, we pray today that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to grasp, to believe to receive, to embrace your covenant kindness. Oh, Father God, if there's someone here today who who has never turned in their heart to you, Father, we pray that today might be the day that they would open their heart to you and say, yes, I want to cling to you. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the greater Boaz, the one who you sent to bear our sin and shame so that we could know your ultimate kindness. Father, we thank you that you have not loaded our shoulders with sacks of grain, but with sacks of grace. Father, we pray that in these days to come, you would help us to live in the light of your kindness. May your kindness Spur us on to be kind to others. May this be contagious in our church, in our community, 
And may you gain great glory as you do your work in our hearts. We pray in the powerful and good name of Jesus. Amen.